Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for October 2018. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and today I'm joined by academic writer and programmer Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. And making a glorious return to our pod, our good friend, academic writer and evil child obsessive, Craig Martin. Welcome back, Craig. G'day, Mark. Good to see you. (laughs) On today's show, we're going to be talking A Star is Born a lot. Uh, We'll begin with a discussion of the new version of the classic story, this time directed by Bradley Cooper and starring Bradley Cooper, with Lady Gaga as the talent on the rise. And then we're going to follow that discussion of the 2018 version with a look back at the earlier iterations of that story with Janet Gaynor, Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand taking on the role of the fresh young thing that takes the world by storm. Then we'll shift gears completely and discuss the career of a picture pong weirocetical stemming from the great director's piece by Nathan Sen that's up on the current issue of Senses of Cinema. And we'll close the show, as always, with our recommendations for the month of October. And for the patrons of Senses of Cinema, today we're going to be discussing in our bonus segment our very favourite Halloween films in tribute to the month of October. But let's get things underway. A Star is Born, version 4 is the story of Jackson Maine, played by Bradley Cooper, who discovers a striking new talent in Ali Campana, played by Lady Gaga, or if you prefer, Stephanie Germanotta, or if you're Eloise... Gargs. Yeah, because you're buds. (laughs) Your mate Gargs. Um, Jackson Maine is a talented drunk on the decline, and she's a fresh-faced talent on the rise. They fall in love, they make some music and then find that their careers are propelling them in opposite trajectories. Considering this film is on its fourth iteration, why does this story continue to drive people to cinemas with each successive generation, Eloise? What's this story doing that brings people back to it? Uh, I think people love it because it's a really big love story, although in the end that's not the point. Maybe people love that it's a bittersweet. I don't know. I mean, part of the whole appeal of it was that it was this film that kind of spoke about the the ugly underbelly of Hollywood, right? Yeah. And kind of exposed that whole thing, um, the machinations of stardom and how it was an industry that just ate people and then spat them out. Yeah. Um, and so people kind of love that. You know, it's got a little bit of that grittiness. It's got glamour. It's got beautiful songs, beautiful women, beautiful men, um, you wow. know. Everything. Kind beautiful of. men that are kind of miserable, dissolute losers <coughs> who just get drunk and piss themselves. Sure, beautiful if you look at them yeah. and they don't talk at you, yeah. you know, I guess is, is, yeah. is the case. If you, you know. like your men who are incontinent, <laughs> this is the film for you. So it's got a little bit of everything. I don't know. And it's just such a grand story that does the same, you know, it's the same kind of layout. This story of, you know, the rising star and the someone who is kind of falling off the off the wagon has been done in other forms right like it's not new it's not original by any means but if you call it a star is born it's pretty glamorous yeah, yeah. and and there are clear we'll talk about this in the next segment but there are clear connections and echoes of those previous versions it's just kind of interesting when you look at the 2018 version which has obviously been very successful like it's doing something to this generation that is really tapping into something that is still current, even though, you know, the original version is from the 30s. This 2018 version is really doing something wild. And is it literally, I mean, I I was grappling a little bit with that concept of, you know, your mate Gargs um, being the nobody who's on the rise when she's already been huge for, for 10 years. And that was one of the things that I couldn't quite 
get my brain around. Am right. I am, am I excited by the fact that this is somebody who I know is already a star and now watching her play somebody who isn't and rising? That's all, But that's the case, and that's the case with all of them. With versions. each of them. Yeah, that's right. And so I think essential to the film is that it is a vehicle for someone who is already established to kind of explore that um, that kind of space in between. It's like we get to go back to the origins of their fame and then relive that through this particular character. Yeah, I heard, you know, that Bradley Cooper apparently said to Lady Gaga when she was preparing, like, imagine this is um, your alley this alley is you if you have not been a success, if you've been, if you're 31 and you haven't made it yet, um, you know, which is obviously an alternate reality to what Lady Gaga is right now, but that's what's kind of really fascinating about it, I think. And Craig, do you think Lady Gaga works? Like, is she up there with your your Garlands and your... Yep, I absolutely, I absolutely do. In fact, uh, you're talking about Garland and Streisand. You're talking about two people who are queer icons. Yeah. And of course, Lady Gaga is a queer yeah. icon. So she's actually carrying the weight of those queer icons as yeah. well. Yeah. And True. as we talk about the other films a bit more, we'll see how in some ways we refer to that over and over again in, yeah. in the latest version. Um, I also think that the reason why the film has captured a new audience and why it's been made again is because it's so mythic. I mean, like mm. it really is. It's taking two things, this sort of... Um, ill-fated love story, uh, sort of almost a Romeo and Juliet in terms of it's just impossible uh, and matches it with a rags to riches Mm -hmm. story. And I think those two things, I mean, particularly the whole American dream thing and what Hollywood represents in that regard, um, come together. Yeah. 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 So how did did we actually enjoy it? I know that people are really kind of (laughs) responding really positively to it. I have kind of a, a couple of weird issues with it, even though I certainly enjoyed it. You, were, a, you were totally on board, were you? Or, yeah? I've got a couple of issues with it, and some of them are attached to the fact that I think Bradley Cooper <clears throat> found it a little difficult to separate himself as a, as a person, whatever that may be. Like, that is obviously an abstract concept for us as an audience from the character of Jackson Maine and that he couldn't demonise him enough. I think that that was actually quite a significant problem with the weighting of the film and the way that that he kind of carried it throughout when really, because essentially it is a rags to riches tale, it should have been more about the character of Ali than Mm. it it was. And so I feel like there was some difficulty there that Bradley Cooper maybe had, although it is extremely well directed. Yeah, Um, I agree. really, Mm, really excellent. And I... I, um, I think that it's really, I've seen it twice now. I saw it at a preview and then I saw it on a Saturday night, the first weekend. Um, Mm. and it was quite a small cinema, but it was sold out, you know, at a 5 PM session, which was really wonderful. Mm. I don't think I've ever been in a cinema like that before recent, you know, in recent years. So that was quite wonderful. Um, a lot of people were really engaged and crying and like loving it. So that, that was wonderful. And I think it's just got such a beautiful energy. In parts, it's like, you know, big kind of highly polished Hollywood blockbuster, but it's also kind of reserved. And at moments I thought it had an intimacy, mm. almost like it was just an indie romance, yeah. mm. which I thought was a really fascinating stylistic choice, given that Bradley Cooper is putting his, you know, um, hat in the ring of this huge mythological sta- tale, mm. um, that that was actually quite wonderful yeah. in parts. Yeah. yeah. You know... When it started and as I settled into the film, I was thinking, geez, there's a sort of almost new Hollywood 
feel about this film. Yeah, yeah. And it had a it had that retroness about it. And I was also just enjoying the fact that I'm sitting in a full theatre. I know this film is going gangbusters at the box office and competing against these um, um, special effects um, blockbusters. And it's like, this is so nice to see. And it was re- reminding me of the days of things like The Way We Were and, yeah. and um, Love Story and those sorts of things. Yeah. And I was thinking about how as you say, Bradley Cooper was sort of aligning himself with, I guess, Ryan O'Neill and Robert yeah. Bradford and those sorts of characters as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, he's a Clint yeah. Eastwood-like, you know, kind of guy, isn't he? Mm. He's yeah. being pitched as the new Clint Eastwood, actor-director kind of thing, was trained by Clint Eastwood, I think, on, you know, American Sniper. Mm. So there is that connection, at least, to New Hollywood in that sense, I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I really... I think that probably for the first half of it, I was 100% in. You know, that, that awesome thrill that you get when you're, you're watching something and you're thinking, oh, this is really terrific. And even though, as we've already said, this is, you know, to describe the narrative as mythic is 100% on the money. It, it may as well, if not Shakespeare, but it may as well be. <laughs> it's a kind of template to, to tell a whole bunch of other stories, which I think is, is wonderful. Um, and that rise of... Um, Ali, you know, I think is really beautifully done. I think she's amazing. I think Cooper directs that first half incredibly. Then I, I hit a spot where I got a little bit confused. Now, I'm more than prepared to admit that maybe it's just because I'm like a thousand years old and I don't understand the youth. But there was a point where she does start to transform. She becomes, you know, she stops being the kind of, honest chick with the microphone and she becomes much more corporate and much more kind of learning dumb dance moves. And she does a couple of songs that are clearly sort of, what is it like, what are you doing with that ass or something (laughs) like some thing? You know, the Bradley Cooper character says something along the lines of, you know, you're selling out, this is a bit dumb. And I actually sort of anticipated that that was going to be a trajectory for her where she starts to, to grapple with the fact that her fame has changed her and she's now doing the sort of music that that is not representative of who she's always been. And although that there is that suggestion that that kind of um, Beyonce effect of the kind of everybody has to dance in line and shake their ass and say you know, lyrics that are sometimes fairly vacuous, there ultimately is no reckoning for that. It's so true. Like there is a real problem, I think, and I think that this is tied to Bradley Cooper's obsession with the Jackson main character. And I do think that his backstory is overdone far oh, yeah. too much. That yeah. obviously giving him a, a brother character and like a problematic childhood to to deal with to, to kind of explain his addiction problems makes sense and it is quite responsible in some senses to say that um, addiction can do this to a person and also a couple. Um, but it was a little overdone and I think that it weirdly the film kind of touches on, I mean, Lady Gaga's persona is someone who is highly curated. So I feel like it's kind of drawing off that in yeah. creating the Ali character who becomes, you know, pop music. She's very finished. Um, she dyes her hair. Like all of this kind of stuff is tied into what Lady Gaga is doing herself with her yes. own, you know, persona outside of the film. And that this film almost, I can't tell whether it's suggesting that Lady Gaga as a cultural icon or as indeed an artist is selling out or that her art is is fake to some level 
because that's almost what the film is saying, but then it doesn't follow through with that exploration. And I find that very difficult because obviously you can see from all of the extra text of the film that Bradley Cooper admires Lady Gaga, thinks she's wonderful, that she's very talented, you know, that he relishes her in this film. And you can see in his reaction shots that he thinks she's like, you know, out of this world. But yeah, that that thing I think maybe was a bit of a loose end that it, the film should have focused on her more at the end. I, um, my take on it's a little bit different mm-hmm. because I saw in the film a sort of Phantom of the Paradise and something a film that you probably won't ever talk about again here is The Apple, mm-hmm. uh, Menahem Golan's Aye. film from 1980. <laughs> yeah. And this whole, this whole Faustian idea yeah. that happens in it where you've got uh, the character of... Um, um, uh, Rev Gavron, yeah. the the producer, yep. who is sort of like you know signed on the dotted line mm. in blood, yeah. uh, and he's he is sort of this character who takes people's souls and yep. turns them into something else and dilutes um, their artistic integrity, um, and that happens in films like I guess De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. Yep. You know, poor Jessica Harper's just wonderful <laughs> and talented, and then she's turned you know she's all turned into something else and. In some ways, it's like Lady Gaga becomes beef uh, mm-hmm. from Phantom. And, uh, yeah. I find like, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the other versions, but that I think is tied to the fact that Bradley Cooper played Jackson Maine possibly because there is that character, you know, the agent, the best friend in all of the other versions, but he's never the, he's never the evil character. He's never the person who says, whose fault it is. Like he's just got everyone's best interests at, at heart, essentially. Whereas in this version, he's shifted to this, you know, evil British money-making machine kind of thing, mm. a heartless character. So, in fact, it becomes his fault that that the downfall occurs, I think, rather than Jackson Maine's. Mm. That that's the very significant shift in yeah. this film, even though in other ways it is following the story very, um, you know, very honourably. I suppose where where I got a little bit confused with that shift, I mean, as soon as she sort of dyes the hair and starts to change, I found her less interesting. And and that's where I had a real problem. And, mm. and I think what mm. you're getting at with the whole kind of the, the destabilisation with the way that Bradley Cooper's maybe dealt with the second half is that the second half is him being awful and losing himself. And I wasn't as invested in his decline as perhaps I should have been. But I also wasn't admiring Lady Gaga's new career where everybody else is saying, you're amazing, you're terrific, look how famous you are. At that point, I'm like, like you look silly. You know, your songs are dumb. And all of that stuff that I really loved about her early on mm. was gone and it was replaced with this other thing. And so I couldn't admire that rise because she wasn't interesting anymore. Mm. She didn't have anything to say. And so that second half felt like, well, now I've got somebody I don't really believe in anymore and somebody who's self-destructing. And now I sort of feel like I'm destabilized. If perhaps there had been that that concept of her selling out had followed through where she had a self-reflection, she goes, all right, like I, I understand what the music industry has done to me. And in some ways it's almost like a parallel of what's happening to Jackson Maine and blah. Mm. Then it would have felt like it all held together. But as you say, maybe you're right. Maybe Cooper is in that second half just really interested in what's happening to his own character. Yeah. And in a sense, this film is not about the industry. It's using that as the setting, yeah. but it does nothing to kind of penetrate what actu- what fame actually means, what effect it has on people. 
um, how people negotiate with their agents other than occasionally have a disagreement and then say, oh, well, you know, so there's no actual penetration of what fame is, um, which I think it occurs in, in some of the other films, maybe a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit more, um, that he is more focused on the two of them, their love story and his addiction, which is a very, I think, you know, responsible kind of move, but perhaps it was just not really dealt with as it could have been. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. But having said that, I loved the second half as well. I didn't fall offside, uh, you know, of Lady Gaga. Yeah. I was still really into her. Um, I, you know, I kind of followed it all through. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was, I was into it. And I do think that it, like, it does kind of lose its energy in the second half, but that's because it's, <clears throat> it's the decline now. Yeah. Whereas, you do have to shift tone, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he, he sustains that like extremely well for the first half. And then he says, oh, wait, now I've got you. Like, let's see, let's see things turn ugly. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that there's not a lot of concentration on, you're talking about the fame stuff, not a lot of concentration on fandom itself. Like you don't yeah. really see any fans in this film. Yeah. Mm. Like this, they're on stage and it's sort of this removal between yeah themselves and the fans the only time you really see it is when he's at the um at the, um, at the drag at the gay bar yeah. at the start yeah. yeah which is really interesting that there's this that she sings la vie en rose and you've got this edith piaf reference and this yeah. sort of um ill-fated singer and we sort of that's there as well i thought yeah. it was really interesting oh yeah. yeah that's so true i haven't thought of that yeah 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 did i read somewhere that that's where was it bradley cooper saw her sing yeah. that and mm. thought that's who I need. At a mm. tribute concert or something. Yeah. yeah a benefit of something. Yeah. He saw her sing that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I think that we're all pretty positive on Star is Born, even if, you know, there's a couple of reservations there. It's, it is still a really tremendous film. So if you want to add to that discussion of A Star is Born 2018, we'd love to hear from you. So head to facebook.com slash senses of cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. It's a tale almost as old as Hollywood itself. From the early 1930s, studio head David Selznick already knew that the industry was big enough that it could indulge in some criticism of its self-mythologisation. In 1932, he produced What Price Hollywood, directed by George Cukor, which in 1937 slightly shifted and developed into the first iteration of A Star is Born, directed by William A. Wellman, a film he envisaged would expose the real truth of Hollywood. In Victoria Wilson's book, Still True, she cites Selznick's quote, We'll tear down all the tinsel. People will know the gutty Hollywood, the tragedy and the humour. It was an epic for the ages, starring golden girl Janet Gaynor and became even bigger in 1954 with Cukor's vehicle, starring Judy Garland and James Mason. These were both grand-scale Technicolor pictures adored by the industry they criticised and celebrated, repeated with slightly less fanfare in 1976 with the Frank Pearson-directed, John Peters-produced Barbara Streisand-starring vehicle. It's been hard material to play with since then, but after shining a light on the 2018 version, let's chat about the previous iterations of the tale in Hollywood and what the story means to us. Craig. Uh, well, one of the things I was thinking about was how often this story gets told. Mm. And I was thinking about the different iterations of it. And some of them that I just wrote down, you mentioned What Price Hollywood, mm. uh, What Price Hollywood. But I was thinking about things like um, The Artist mm -hmm. and yeah. even King Kong yeah. and how, how this tale gets told over and over again. So we've mentioned before about this whole mythic yeah. aspect to these films and you certainly see that there. 
But um, look, my favourite of the three versions is um, George Cooker's version. But I certainly love Wellman's yeah. version. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like, yeah. we owe him so much because he's the one who started this off. Yeah. 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 And, and is the Babs version going to get any love out of any of us? I loved it from memory very dearly up until about a week ago when <laughs> I really watched it. it. <laughs> um, and it's actually very bad because it's so <laughs> slow. It takes so long to get anywhere. There's no, I mean, and part of this is the power of Streisand and that she, by this point in 76, had maybe lost sight of acting and was so obsessed with her, with putting her own image out there that there's no sense Mm. that she's actually a struggling artist in the film at all, (laughs) Mm. or that she needs saving, um, or that she actually gets anything from Chris Christopherson's interference or like, you know, entrance into her life. And so that just doesn't work where with Janet Gaynor, you know, she was loved and then kind of, you know, lost her fans in Hollywood. Judy Garland obviously um, had had again become box office poison, um, you know, that, that whole kind of thing. And then with the more recent one, Lady Gaga has been, you know, had a different kind of persona up until this point when she made this film or when she made her previous album, Joanne, was when she kind of shifted gears again. Um, and so we can kind of trace the same thing of the actress in the film happening to the actress who played her, except for in the Streisand version. Because, yeah. I, I mean, having gone back and looked at them all as well, there's that sense that she didn't really have <sighs> anything to, to gain from it. There was no backstory to her. There was no reason for her to do it other mm. than, like, I just want to, like, be in a movie and sing a lot. Um and and that version just or I want to really... take the place of this mythic, like this mythic, yeah, like I, role in Hollywood. Yeah, and but there's no desperation behind yeah. that 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 exists yeah. with the others. I think, mm. which is why that one just feels weirdly out of whack. I mean, I, I had a, a similar reaction to you. I had a vague memory that I had seen it, and my only memory of it was really something about a house, and I knew that there was something about a house. And when I sat down and rewatched the it, house thinking, in the desert, yeah, how ugly is it? Well, see, <laughs> ugly and beautiful. I remember really thinking that that house is kind of amazing right. because it was just so flat and deserted, and then there's this whopping big house in the middle of nowhere, and that is something that's stuck in my memory from some time that I've seen it. Mm. But like you, I sat down and thought, oh well, you know, I have seen this before, and there's a really great house in it. <laughs> and then I watched it and I thought, you know, the only thing I actually like in this film is that damn house Um, because everything else is terrible. I can't imagine, I mean, where that one doesn't work is that their their careers are so radically different, Mm. Christopherson's and Streisand's, that, you know, it's like having Ariana Grande turn up at an Ozzy Osbourne concert. It's like (laughs) you're not going to stand in front of all of these kind of hard rockin' dude bros in the audience and sing friggin' Evergreen. You know, it, 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 it's ridiculous. And But we get all these shots of the audience like, yeah, I really love this power ballad. Not going to happen. Yeah. That's all this, so this middle-of-the-road music in a, at a hard rock concert, it's like, <clears throat> not working. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. But yeah. when you go to the Garland one. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, obviously that, I mean, not obviously, but I feel like amongst fans of this story, that is the most adored 
of all of them for, I mean, for the direction, for the colour, for Garland, I think, more than anything. Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, it's a tour de force. Yeah, for the man that got away. That, <coughs> oh, that, God. Oh, Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I, I might have been imagining this, but I have seen it twice. So I think, you know, there's actually two moments in the Q-Core version where the camera goes out of focus, right? And one of them is in The Man That Got Away. Mm. And the fact that he left it, the fact that q left it in there, you can think is just means that the performance was so powerful yeah. that it had to kind of be kept in there, yeah. even though that moment kind of um, obscured the fact that this was a film. That's, um, that's during that long take when it yeah, pulls back. Yeah, it's just all Yeah, it goes shot. out yeah. of focus for about a second or two. Yeah. yeah. And in the new version, I reckon that that scene where they're fighting and then he throws cake in her face, I reckon it goes out of focus in that scene. And I wondered whether it was some kind of homage to that moment. Anyway, I could have been um, imagining things, but I feel like, I mean, there are other instances where Bradley Cooper is referring back to those earlier versions. Yeah. yeah. Um, people say it's most like the seventies version, but I'm like, is that only because it's about music and not Hollywood? I don't, you know, I think that it has more in connection with the earlier versions. Yeah. Although look, I think that, uh, he's styled himself somewhat on, well, Springsteen in some ways. I, uh, I thought so too. Mm, yeah, but but yeah. also Christopherson in terms mm. of his looks with his shoulder length hair and his beard and yeah. that, that whole thing is yeah. certainly recalling that. And also Babs and the obsession with her nose. <laughs> yeah. But you also get that in the Kukor version yeah. as yeah. well. And the, yeah. the fact that they these um, those cosmeticians yeah. spend so much time, that's the word cosmeticians, yeah. spend so much time... Um, Obsessing Trying. about her nose yeah. and how we're going to fix Which, it. Yeah, yeah, and then she pe- yeah. and then he peels off, peels the, off the you nose. know the fake kind of. But I mean, even yeah. the the Lady Gaga version has that obsession about her nose as well, yeah. so, all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it keeps recurring. I I was wondering whether there's anything to be read in the fact that that story has shifted from an emphasis on Hollywood to an emphasis to music. Is are we looking at a, a kind well, of shift the, away from this idea system, that system, right? Like, isn't that simply it in the seventies oh, when okay. they, you know, I was thinking yeah, it go. couldn't happen anymore. You know, that someone would be brought in and could be tested like that. Like the mm. fame in the movie industry doesn't work the same way. Yeah, is that is it just simply that? I mean, or was I, I wondered because... whether it's that idea of the dream of Hollywood has faded. As, you know, the, the locus to, for people to flock to, to become famous. And maybe the music industry has sort of replaced that idea of the meteoric rise rather than the, the film industry being as, like, you know, the, the leading industry for fame. Mm. I, I mean, I don't know. But, I mean, you, that's another way of thinking about it. Maybe it is a, a purely kind of shift because of the, the studio system. You're not getting signed to a contract and therefore you don't rise in that way. That could be true too. I, I certainly see this sort of um, shift to from the first film uh, with Janet Gaynor, where she's just, not just, but she's an, she's just the actress. Yeah. Uh, and then you have this movement towards um, singing with yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. with Kukor's version. Yeah. And that then progresses and progresses as it goes along. But uh, one of the things about uh, the most recent version is um, seeing Gargs walking up that... Um, that ramp in the parking lot uh, and singing the opening refrain of um, that was incredible of somewhere over the rainbow yeah. and it's sort of oh that's yeah. a really lovely yeah. homage to that because yeah. the first film reminded me so much of the Wizard of Oz where you have this sort of Dorothy Gale esque character who's going I want to I want to go somewhere different I want to yeah. go somewhere that's not this farm mm. yeah. and she she gets away with the help of her grandmother and and 
who's sort of like a Glinda-esque character, yeah. and the fact that Arnie M is in it as well. Yeah. yeah. You know? And she goes to this, you know, or this Wonderland kind of place, yeah. right, yeah. of Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. But yeah, that opening shot and just the way the, the title kind of very slowly um, bleeds onto the screen and frames Lady Gaga in the middle as she's walking up is was is very moving. Yes. It's already extremely moving. Yes. Yeah. From the very that very beginning. Agreed. Yeah. 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 I was swallowing hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, people tend to not talk about the Janet Gaynor version so much. Is that true? Just because the the Garland one is so famous and then the, the Streisand one is kind of was until now the most recent and kind of, you know, could be very easily spoken down about that the Gaynor one kind of gets forgotten. It's a shame because it's mm. really, you know, that scene where someone pulls her veil off and she screams. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Oh, that's that's yeah. a horror film yeah, yeah, right yeah. there. That reminded I, me so yeah. much of, uh, what I've read it down, um, The Day of the Locust. Yeah. Mm. I was just like, oh, these fans are grotesque. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That is something that, you know, because the film is about glamour but it's and it's about how you can succeed if you've got fans, but it's also about how fans can just be horrific. Yeah. That that is something missing from the more recent versions, okay. isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that scene, that shot particularly, yeah. makes me just oh. gasp. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, it's chilling. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And the fact that she she's told she's warned by her grandmother at the start, if you're successful, yeah. if you stardom comes a at price. a cost, there's yeah. a price for it. And you know, and she reminds her when you know she's down and out, and she just and well, not down and out, but when she can't get herself. Back up again, this grandmother comes and says, hey, you need to, and this is the price you've had to pay for fame. Yeah. That's so true. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Because in the more recent versions, and I think even the 76 one, they suggest that the only price for fame is that you might lose your jealous husband. <laughs> um, whereas in the earlier one, it's no, these people are going to like, you know, try and feed off you. Mm. Um, and that in fact, having fans is, is not a blessing at all. And mm. so fame is, fame is what will eat you, mm. um, rather than the fact that, you know, your husband is just going to get jealous kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's something that is maybe being lost from the transition from Hollywood to the yeah. music industry. Yeah. Um, I'm also sure. fascinated by this idea that there are just certain beats in each iteration of this story that we come back to again and again. And it's, you know, there's enough wiggle room to sort of introduce new things or shift industries or whatever. But we always have to have, you know, just stand there. I want to have one more look at you. Oh. That keeps coming back. Um, you know, the disgrace at the awards night, which is, you know, obviously the, the great success for the, the young woman on the rise, the embarrassment, humiliation of the, the guy on the descent. Mm. We, we keep coming back to those images again and again. I, I love the fact that it feels like, you know, if it is a, indeed a mythic story, there are certain beats to that mythic story that you can't overlook. Mm. You've got to have those elements in there. You can't overlook that awards night or else the whole thing falls apart like mm. a house of cards, which mm. is amazing. Yeah. That's so true. I just noticed this quote that I had written down from the Streisand version where he says, he asks her, uh, Chris Christopherson asks her her name and she says, Esther Hoffman. And I think at this point he says, in the past year, I bet you're the only girl I met with the last name. Yeah. And like, if we're talking about beats, yeah. that that obsession with her name is something that is also something that cannot be extracted from 
the film. Yeah. Although I think it is actually to the film's detriment in the Bradley Cooper version that she, in fact, doesn't have a last name. I mean, you mentioned it. I've seen it in discussions about the film, but I yeah. don't think it's ever mentioned. mentioned um, and that I think that that is kind of something <clears throat> that's missing from giving her a backstory, giving her an identity, because in the first two, she's Esther Blodgett, right? And they change her name to Vicky Lester because it's a Hollywood stage name. Um, and so she's just simply Vicky Lester. Until the end, she's Mrs. Norman Maine. Um, and in the Streisand version, she refuses to change her name. You know, she says, no, I'm Esther Hoffman. And I think that that's some great... I've, there's a chapter somewhere in a book, and I, I forgive me if you were the author and I've forgotten who <laughs> who you are, but who, it talks about the fact that that's very important with Streisand's star persona because Streisand never let go of her Jewishness <clears throat> and that it's very connected to her star persona and her presence and the fact that she kind of clung to it in that version as the Esther Hoffman character is tied to Barbara Streisand herself, mm. never letting go of her name. Yeah. Um, and then she takes on, you know, um, Howard at the end, but just is Hoffman Howard, Esther Hoffman Howard. Whereas, yeah. yeah, that doesn't happen in the recent one. But that obsession with name, I think, and what name means and whether name is essential to uh, stardom yeah. or not is very interesting. And again, one of those beats that, the, that, that seems to be in each iteration is the moment where, you know, the young woman stands up and says, my name is blah, yeah. and, it, and you have to kind of combine her... You know, her blodget name with her main name, and mm. and you know everything gets hyphenated. So there's a recognition of, of the integration of her life with you know the, the sad, terrible husband who's fallen into disrepute. Um, so I mean, I just find it fascinating that that we keep returning to the same iterations, like we come back to the same thing again and again. Is are these versions saying anything specific about the generations that created them? I think so. Because um, don't don't you get the sense that like every generation gets their star is born and and it ha it's saying something, yeah, well, the same but different. The Janet Gaynor one certainly, you know, this whole starstruck thing. Yeah, she's certainly very starstruck. I just wanted to say something about that. That um, um, Clara Blandick, um, who plays Arnie M in Wizard of Oz, she's the naysayer in the film and and mm. says, you know, um, give up this ridiculous dream. Uh, and it's interesting that Bradley Cooper took that idea and reintroduced it with, uh, I think it's Lorenzo, Andrew Dice Clay's character. Mm. And, you know, there's that moment where uh, Lady Gaga's in the kitchen, Ali's in the kitchen, and she overhears her father saying, you know, you'll never become anything. And he talks about her looks. And it's yeah. just this awful soul-destroying moment, yeah. Yeah. How, how she's having to, you know, try to buttress herself against it. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, I sort of got off topic then, no, but I just okay. wanted yeah. to add that because yeah. um, I think it's important that he was... Um, um, cherry picking so many different ideas yeah. from across these these mythic films. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With the idea that you know one of the most powerful sequences in the Judy Garland version is the bit where James Mason is lying in bed, and and, and overhears the discussion yeah. that Judy Garland's having with someone about the fact that she's basically going to surrender her career to look after him because he needs so much help, which is of course his decision to go and walk into the sea. I mean, that's what I missed about the most recent version that it's not him overhearing but it's him getting you know spoken to like a bad child mm. so in fact he becomes the victim um which i think is a is a really you know unfortunate shift because yeah. it, it's it is actually very sad to yeah. kind of have those moments yeah. in those other films 
Um, yeah. So anyway, if you haven't seen them, then you should go back and watch all of these versions. Try Absolutely. and hunt down What Price Hollywood as well. Um, it's, it's very connected to them, even though it is a slightly different sh- story and there are three characters rather than two. Um, but it is of course that first film that's, that, that came in at Hollywood and they, when Hollywood kind of owned up to itself as this industry that did in fact, you know, eat people and spit them out. So yeah. Yes. Anyway, very worthwhile checking them all out. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Sensors, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Sensors of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Nathan Sen's article in the latest edition of Senses of Cinema casts a spotlight on one of the most singular voices in contemporary cinema, the Thai director Apichapong Wirasetakul. Happily, preferring the name Joe, Wirasetakul's cinema is a slow, dreamy interrogation of the past and the present, the urban and rural jungles, and lives and spirits that exist on multiple planes, shifting form and time with disarming ease. Sen describes it as a cinema of social, carnal and metaphysical border crossings. Craig, what strikes you as one of the most compelling features of Wirasetical's approach to filmmaking? Uh, Mark, I feel like you just described it all. (laughs) The end! (laughs) You you encapsulated uh, his main ideas, but I think there's sort of a a nexus of East and West that happens in his film as well, and the paradoxes of what Thailand is about in that regard. Yeah. Um, comes out pretty clearly, and also uh, with that, um, a traditional versus modern, and you see this particularly around his uh, his own background coming from parents who were both medicos, and the fact that you then uh, see Buddhist monks in GPs' offices, and yeah. and there's this sort of clash of culture there between um, traditional remedies and Western medicine, and between sort of a um, commitment to care and to healing compared to next please, yeah, and that whole sort of bureaucracy that exists. It's kind of fascinating the way that he does take like total opposites throws them together and whether it's you know modern medicine or kind of you know chew this root um or you know i'm alive i'm dead you know (laughs) i'm a person i'm a tiger like he will take complete opposite states and just throw them together and it's almost like the the interrelationship between these completely opposite planes of existence or understanding or medicine or whatever are unexceptional that it's not like 
look at the dramatic difference between the two. Mm. People seem to move between the two states really easily and and unremarkably. Um, I most recently watched uh, um, uh, Cemetery of Splendor, and there is a sequence where uh, the main character has been to a temple, left a kind of offering for these two kind of goddesses, spirit goddesses, I suppose, at a shrine. And then they just kind of rock up and try and show off their nice material. And she's like, oh, who are you two? And these two women are like, oh, you know, can I have some of your fruit? Look at this nice (laughs) bit of material I've got. And then finally the main character clocks to the fact, oh, so you're the princesses. You've actually embodied yourself and come and sitting down and having lunch with me. And they're like, yeah, how's it going? And... And the, the woman sort of responds, the main character responds like, oh, this is weird, but okay. And so the, the, the idea of bringing complete ghost spirits that you've you know prayed to at a temple and have them sit down and have lunch with you is almost unexceptional and unremarkable. And so I think we're a set of called constantly is blending, you know, different, completely opposite states but not necessarily suggesting that there's anything odd or strange about it. That's so true. And it actually connects maybe abstractly with something that I love the most about Wurus Ethical's films, which is um, that you can, they can kind of transform you into a different state, a state that is not simply just watching a film, but that is kind of being with a film. So when I saw Cemetery of Splendor, I saw it on the first weekend of the Melbourne Film Festival, which if anyone... Um, who is listening has been to the first weekend of the film festival, you'll know that you're pretty much just really tired and asleep for most of it. (laughs) So I was asleep for quite a lot of this film when I saw it. But I think that that actually... Just like the people in the hospital. Yeah, isn't it? It's kind of perfect. And I don't think that I actually missed anything. I mean, of course I missed something, but... Like, I don't think that my experience was subpar to someone else's experience who may have been awake for the <laughs> whole film. I feel like I'm maybe digging myself a hole at this point. Um, <laughs> Would you like us to bail you out? <laughs> but, but, but the fact that you can kind of still really appreciate and be drawn into these films, films like this, particularly Cemetery of Splendor, even if you're not 100% there, um, you know, as a conscious kind of investor in the film. Hmm speaks to their power and their beauty and I think is actually part of what he might be inviting us to to say, which is that you can have opposing states awake and asleep yeah. um, and that they're okay yeah. with his movies, that, yeah. that it's absolute, absolutely fine to kind of um, indulge in that in that state, in that transgression of, yeah. of viewing. Right. You don't get a sense that this is an angry person who has a voice that needs to be heard. Yeah. There's a much more sort of contemplative, almost, I guess, uh, a Buddhist um, meditative mm. uh, practice that's happening yeah. in these films. And so it's sort of really appropriate that you yeah. have this moment of slumber in the middle of a film yeah. where you have these soldiers slumbering. It's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, Nathan Sen touches on it in his article, but that um, he's a a filmmaker who is so committed to this kind of Buddhist cause Mm. and that it comes through in his films um, that he, in his appreciation of nature, is so tied to the, you know, Thai way of living. But that he is, you know, 
um, censored by the, the Thai government and that his films aren't screened there anymore and that he can't even make films there, I don't think. Um, but that even though, you know, so much of the this um, way of living comes through in his films, he isn't appreciated there. Um, and that that's, you know, I mean, that's pretty sad. It's pretty mm. devastating that mm. that's the case, but that he is censored even though he's, you know, and, and it's possible that he's trying to subvert things, but that he's, he's end um, or his approach overall, I think, is very calm and very um, welcoming. Yeah. Once you sort of dive into his whole kind of block of films, or at least his features anyway, I mean, one of the things that is kind of weird when you really assemble them all in some ways, individually they all play around with narrative structures. They, you know, move backwards and forwards in time or in dream states or whatever, but they also sometimes just completely split in half Mm. so that each individual film kind of cuts up and plays around with that narrative. And yet, I mean, I know that we all watched a a bunch of his films. Do you not also get the sense of a kind of long form serialized drama (laughs) where, where characters keep recurring from one film to the next and you think, Oh, I remember you from uncle Boon me. And here you are like being a nurse over here. Good for you. And you know, you used to be a soldier in that film and now you're a sleeping soldier. Like you get that sense of characters kind of living beyond their, their one kind of, moment, they're one character within a film. Yep. Certainly. Even though within the film itself, yep. they might stop being that character or disappear completely or become a tiger. Well, it's almost a form of reincarnation that is yeah. happening in yes. these films where these these characters are coming back and back and back. Yeah. Well, also, um, he studied architecture as an undergraduate before he went into filmmaking. And so, I mean, I don't know whether he... I've got a quote from him. Let's see if I can find it, where he talks about architecture he says, in architecture, so I wrote about um, Wirosepical, a picture by Wirosepical a couple of years ago in a zine, a Melbourne-produced zine called Fireflies, and I included this quote. In architecture, your audience walks into the space. They experience the space, the light and shadow, by walking through time. So you design the space to evoke certain feelings and certain reactions from the viewer. The same with film. You use time, but I think film is more forcing the audience to experience while sitting in the dark. So I think architecture gives more freedom in a way, um, which is a really interesting way of kind of conceptualising, you know, physical space, but also of relating it to the space of film. And I feel like in his films, the way I respond to them at least is that it's presenting something for us to just kind of wander through you know, and there are a lot of people, including Giuliana Bruno, who talk about film as architecture, as a space that you can kind of explore for experience. And so maybe each of his films is just kind of set up as the, like a different room in his yeah. building that he's constructing, that they are all, in fact, from the same house. Um, and that when, if we're watching them, it's just another way of us to kind of explore something that he's creating. Yeah. Um, and that that I mean, that's the way, that's kind of what I get the most out of his films is not plot, it's not, you know, criticism of the government, it's mm. not any of these kind of clash of cultures, which of course are all, all there um, and maybe, you know, I would get different things out of it if that's what I focused on. But what I love the most is just the experience of kind of being with the films mm. yeah. in that way. Mm. It's interesting Mark, you were saying before about these these um, halves, and yet there's no actual rupture that happens. No. It's really interesting yeah. how they bleed. Um, the first film that I watched, and it's, I don't know if it's my favourite because it's the first I watched, but it was um, Blissfully Yours. 
And it's my favourite for what it's worth. Lovely. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I had read about this and then forgotten while I was watching it because it's so entrancing, because these shots are so long and languid and they, uh, these non-moving still moments that just go on and on and give you an opportunity just to allow your mind to wander. Mm. Uh, and so I sort of forgot about what I'd read, which was that the um, opening credits don't appear until like 45 minutes into the film. Mm. And so when they did, it was such a surprise for me, uh, even though I knew. Uh, and it was interesting in that film how, even though it wasn't a rupture, there was a complete change where the first half was all set in an urban um, scape uh, and all the troubles, the quotidian troubles of, um, of the future and how are we going to make money? How are we going to survive? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And then when they move into the country, they become, there's this animism that happens where they just revert to this primitive state and they're in the, they're in the jungle and it's all about being in the moment and you're invited to go along and it's just the most lyrical thing. It's just beautiful the way, it, the shift it's stunning, and the you know, the use of sound design in those scenes mm. is incredible. Like that, it's just so rich and slow and unintrusive. Mm. It just invites you to kind of listen and be there. Um, what's kind of interesting, though, is you know that that film in particular has the little um, you know uh, captions at the end that say what all the characters do and you know their their problems are like <laughs> solved um for want of a better description but that they all kind of just go back to the city um and that that's the solution in the end so obviously they go through this incredible transformative experience and mm. like kind of get in touch with themselves in the jungle but then they just go back to town essentially and it's like oh well <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and that that's it but there's just this little kind of written coda that we get and there's no you know, he doesn't kind of take us out of that state to to see how they've, you know, solved their problems. Yeah. Yes, he allows us to in, to take to take the state of being in the moment yeah, away yeah. with us. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you guys think of his recent film that came up on YouTube like a few weeks ago? Blue. I didn't see it. Um, it was a. Did you watch it? I did. I that, did. Like Curious. twelve minute. Um, no dialogue. Was that Jen again on in the bed? It might have been. Mm. I'm not I love sure. her. She's wonderful. But it was produced by the uh, Paris Opera, and I and it's kind of this really fascinating film, Mark, where this woman is sleeping in a, a theaterette kind of thing, and the, like backdrops just keep being dropped and yeah, then lifted and again. Yeah. And that that sound almost becomes kind of comforting. <laughs> At first it's <laughs> intrusive, but then it becomes comforting, the sound of like being kind of wound down, like dropping curtains. I'm like, is it filmed in the opera? Maybe. Um, I can't figure I it out. I have no idea. But that I found that quite fascinating at the end, that it said like, with thanks to the Paris opera. Um, and that kind of, it's just again kind of suggesting I don't know, maybe some sort of interest or intrigue of the dream state um, and how the dream state can, the dream state will maybe put you in this place that's in between performance and and nature. I, I don't know. I don't have a very well thought out kind of response to it, but I just found it very moving. Mm. Um, I actually watched it for 12 minutes and didn't even look away. Mm. Yeah. Do we at least get some public aerobics? <laughs> no. No? No. <laughs> no public aerobics. No. I'm not watching it. 
<laughs> Forget it. Syndromes in a century. Great end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, at, I found that short film really interesting. And the fact that these you have these two um, landscapes that um, yep. that come in. And one is one is urban and one is rural. Yeah, um, so true. There is yeah. a sort of a day and a night. There's all those different things going on there. Uh, and you have this character who's like with... Um, uh, oh, what's what's the one you saw, Mark? Um, Cemetery Splendor. Uh, you have this person who's asleep all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and this um, sleeping, waking state. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and mesmerising. Even though it's twelve minutes long. Yep. It's absolutely mesmerising. Yep. Yeah. 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 He's certainly an interesting filmmaker. Um, if you would like to add to our discussion about. A picture pong we're aesthetical. By all means, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash senses of cinema, and leave some comments there on our episode thread. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it a film, television, or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and that we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this October, Mark. Well, this didn't light up my screen world. This dimmed the lights severely. Uh, We are taping uh, on a day just after the news has broken that Filmstruck is being closed down. One of the most depressing, miserable pieces of news I could have imagined. Um, It really is an extraordinary service. They have curated this awesomely and incredibly... um, Indeed, you know, there's a whole stack of films by Wirasetical up there. There's a whole stack of stuff that is A Star Is Born up there. Um, it is a, an extraordinary uh, streaming system that included um, Turner Classic Movies. It included Criterion Collection. It was the capacity for true cinephiles to come together, see a whole stack of amazing films. It was beautifully curated and headed most publicly by Alicia Malone, who uh, had a podcast up and running, uh, connected to Filmstruck, uh, and so much of their material was curated with such intelligence and such love for cinema. The fact that it's been closed down after a couple of years, um, I just think is a real loss, and I would hope that people will... I mean, there's so many things to protest about, right? I mean, that can we like forget about some of the kind of actual really important stuff and all <laughs> protest about the loss of Filmstruck? Because I want to grab a pitchfork and go up, you know, climb a hill and you know overturn some authorities uh, because it, it's just a, a real tragedy. But uh, I guess if there's an upside, we you know you've got a month, you've got a month left to watch uh, Filmstruck, so. You know, dive into that streaming service if you are already a member, and just devote November to watching as much as you can before it gets snatched cruelly away from us. And as a, a final thing, I would just like to to um, give big ups to Alicia Malone and the people who have run Filmstruck so beautifully over the last couple of years. That takes me back to our conversation towards the end of our last time together when we talked about Annihilation and the fact that, you know, it's getting harder and harder to see a whole lot of mm. films. Yeah. And, you know, Filmstruck was a great yeah. service for that. Yeah. So it's RIP. Yeah. It's a real shame. My understanding is that the, the impetus for it is to, you know, it was too niche because, you know, we only believe in big blockbuster stuff now. So if That's it's the niche, most depressing you get shoved off. Ever. So, Isn't it? Nerds to you, Warners. Mm. Craig? Oh, well, um... Mine's not a, I, I've 
discovered a lovely film from 2002, just mm. this month, and I wanted to share it with everybody. And so I'm, uh, I'm glad I'm here to do so. It's uh, Jong Hyung Lee's, uh, who's Korean director, his film, The Way Home. Um, beautiful film uh, about a little boy who's dumped on the doorstep of his grandmother by his single mother. And uh, in a sort of, we're a Setagal way, we have this um, uh, polarization of um, country and city. And this grandmother doesn't just live in the country, she lives without running water, she lives without electricity, she lives in this tiny little, little pokey uh, hut. And this kid is just dumped there and he's come from city, from the city. And so he's used to being pampered and, and spoiled by technology and he has to get used to that. And he absolutely pours all his bile and venom about, um, his anger mm. about being dumped, uh, onto his grandmother who barely says a word through the entire film. And just this doubled over old woman who just takes it all on board and she just takes it all and she's so patient with him and there is this reckoning for this boy when he realises that he is just being loved and held and adored and oh. everything is going to be okay. And there's this beautiful moment of reconciliation between the two because he is so mean to her mm -hmm. that you get really angry with him and then you realise, you know, he's just a kid and he doesn't know how to how to um, control his feelings and yeah. so he's lashing out. Really, really beautiful Korean film. Oh, the Way Home. Wow. I will be chasing that down. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And Eloise, what have you got? <clears throat> well, I kind of got a bit sneaky and I have three. Oh. But they're all, <laughs> but they're all kind of related. So the first one is um, something that's been around for a, a year. So people may have seen it already, but just on theme with our conversation about A Star Is Born um, is the doco on Netflix, Gaga Five Foot Two, which is about, uh, was f filmed kind of in the year just after she'd signed up for the movie because in the first scene um, she kind of gets she says I just signed up for a movie A Star Is Born you know um, and then it kind of follows her so it's a kind of a behind the scenes thing about Gaga recording her album with Mark Ronson her album Joanne and then the release of it and getting prepped to um, do the Super Bowl halftime show um, which was quite fascinating to see because as I was watching it, I was remembering where I was when I saw the Super Bowl show, which was, um, you know, kind of bringing back some connections for me. Um, but I, I think it's a really fascinating documentary in that there are a lot of documentaries about stardom and about fame and about particular personalities that kind of undercut it, but particularly because Lady Gaga was so impenetrable for so long and was just this, like, crazy star who wore meat meat yeah for instance um that that kind of getting into who she is and how she thinks about her fame and how she's been um maneuvering all of this for like 11 12 years now was was really fascinating to see um i really liked it and the next thing is the profile on lady gaga called the shapeshifter by rachel simon the new york magazine um which was very well written, extremely interesting. And she says her iteration as like a, a normal person um, acting in A Star Is Born is just another performance, um, which is really, you know, really kind of great because I guess a lot of her fans or a lot of other people are like, oh, who, who is Lady Gaga now? Is she just normal? Is she not going to be crazy anymore? Um, but, but no, for her, it's just another phase um, that she's just going to continue with these different iterations of her personality. Um, and... Beyond that, just one more profile, which I read this morning. So um, 
on the 30th of October is 25 years since River Phoenix died. Um, I read this too. Yeah. yeah, and there's a profile written by Hadley Freeman in The Guardian where Samantha Mathis is interviewed for the first time since that night about him. Um, and it's just, you know, really fascinating to kind of see obviously how his legacy has gone, but how he might have gotten to that point and, and what she feels. There's a, a, a line which is really quite interesting. Next week is the 25th anniversary of that night when the young actor who had always taken care to eschew all the usual celebrity cliches, died the most cliché death of all on Sunset Boulevard at the age of just 23, which is like a really kind of heartbreaking line. I feel yeah. like I'm shivering just saying it, yeah. but yeah. like very stunning to think that he was someone who hated stardom and yet his death was is like, you just kind of like, really? <laughs> that, that was the thing. I mean, I... I remember, I remember that when he died. Yeah, mm. me too. Every interview that he ever gave, he's like, "I'm a vegetarian. You've always got to be nice and eat healthy and be great." And by the way, I'm taking a whole truckload of drugs and dying on the whole Sunset Boulevard. And it just like the story didn't make sense when you heard it. Mm. Yeah, considering the persona that he built up, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but it's a really fascinating kind of read. Uh, it's you know, it's not too long, but it's it, you know, it packs a punch. So yeah, yeah. and I, you do forget about. Joaquin, who was Leaf back then, yeah. but yes, who's now right. like he's, he's such a huge, yeah. yeah, such a huge star. But you know, you sort of are reminded, oh yeah, you had the brother that died, he and was, you he were was there, eighteen or yeah, seventeen or eighteen at the time, or something. Or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's tragic. Yeah. I, one of his films that I was introduced to when I worked at the video store was um, Dogfight, which is just beautiful. I love, I love, that, love film. that film so much. God, yeah. with yeah. Lily Taylor, yeah, it's a beautiful two-hander. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know it. And then I met Nancy Savoka when I was in New York a few years ago and um, I went and hunted it down because she's the director. Um, mm. And so had, yeah, I was kind of, yeah, really floored by it. Yeah, me too. Mm. Anyway, River Phoenix, let's go and all go and watch some of his movies. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. And thanks to Craig for coming back to speak with us again. Lovely it's to be such here. It's a pleasure to have you on, Craig. Thank thanks, you. Craig. <laughs> Thanks also to our technical producer, Troy Mori, whose star continues to shine while Eloise and I dissolve into puddles of alcoholic torpor. <laughs> <laughs> thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again next month.